All right, Meadow! How are we doing tonight? Yeah? We doing okay? Yeah, good. How many of you guys had a fantastic day today? Oh, I love hearing that. I really, really, really enjoyed watching the field competition. You guys in the orbs going all sorts of crazy and different things. That was a blast. Where's my man Kai at? Dude, that guy right there. Not only did he do a killer job in the orb, but then he came up behind me at the judging station, orbless and did a land belly flop for me just to satisfy the score that he already got. So well done, well done, well done. All right, tonight, tonight we are gonna have a blast together. We've been talking about truth. We talked about the truth of God. We talked about the truth of scripture. And tonight we are talking about the truth of Jesus, and as we saw the dogs here in Dogtopia, they were, they were talking before the judge of who this Jesus is, and every single one of the witnesses came, and it was not the testimony that the purebreds wanted to see or hear, and that is what we have in Jesus, somebody who breaks down the social barriers, the social norms, does not always meet expectations of what we would think, but is greater than our expectations could ever imagine. And so we're going to be in John chapter 4 to start tonight, but let me just highlight a little bit about what happened in John chapter 2 and John chapter 3, just so you guys know, in case you aren't up to that place in your Bible, but I encourage you to read it on your own. John chapter two is Jesus's first miracle. He has his, his disciples with him and he's at a wedding and the wedding runs out of wine and his mom comes to him and says, Jesus, they need some wine. And he says, my time has not yet come. And then his mom looks at the servants and says, do whatever it is that he tells you to do. And Jesus takes these jars that were used for cleansing and washing, and he instructs the servants to fill them with water. And so these servants do so. They don't understand what exactly is going to happen, but they fill them with water because she said, do whatever he, it is that he tells you to do. And so these servants fill them, and as they are taking the cup full to the host of the wedding, Jesus performs his first miracle. And it, the host tr takes the drink of the wine and he says that it's very rare that anyone would choose to save the best wine for last. In chapter three, Jesus has this really interesting interaction with a guy, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. But this is what's interesting about how Nicodemus approaches Jesus. He approaches the light of the world in darkness. Why? Because Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He has his rep to worry about. He has his prestige and his power and authority within the, his citizenship to worry about. And he can't be seen with this rabbi that the Pharisees and the religious rulers are conflicted about. And so he goes in the cover of darkness. Why? Because he's a little bit afraid, but he's also a little bit ashamed. But yet he's curious about this teacher that teaches with authority. Jesus tells him, in order to be a follower of mine, to inherit the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And to that, Nicodemus kind of 
raises his brow. That's a foreign concept. That's something that doesn't really make sense. But yet he's curious. He's intrigued by the person of Jesus, by the teacher of Jesus. And now we're up to John chapter 4. It says this in verse 1. It says, Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. Pause right there. I love that. I love that. Jesus entrusts a piece of God's instruction while he's still on this earth to his disciples who were just common people like you and I. For whatever reason, God sees it best, sees it fit for us, broken outside of the redeeming grace of Jesus to participate in his kingdom things. And I'm grateful for that every single day. Do I consider myself worthy of that? No. But yet, I know that the authority by which I do things comes from Jesus and Jesus alone because he said so. All authority has been given to me and I give it to you. So go baptizing them teaching them to obey the scriptures, making disciples. He equips us through this thing called the Holy Spirit. The moment we lay down our old self and pick up the new self made right by Jesus' sacrifice, we are equipped with the Holy Spirit to do works for the kingdom, which is crazy to me because so much of my life was all about me and not about him. Verse three, it says, so they left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go. I don't know if you guys like to write in your Bible, but I do. I like to highlight and I like to circle things that are important. And one of the, the words that I have circled in my Bible right there in verse 4 is had to. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Look, Jews at this time, if they were traveling from Galilee, which is at the top, to Judea, which is at the bottom, Samaria being in the middle, Jews in this time would go to great lengths, extra mileage, unfavorable conditions to avoid Samaria at all costs. There was a lot of turmoil and, 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 and tenacity between these two cultures. They did not coexist well. They did not enjoy each other. There was bad blood. And so the Jews would not want to be associated whatsoever with the Samaritans. So they would, they would walk around their entire section. They would avoid them at all costs. And when you read the words, had to go through Samaria, it's not as if there was a 20 camel pile up on the highway and ways told them, oh, we're gonna redirect your path through Samaria. No, 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 this was a divine appointment. God had somebody that Jesus was supposed to meet and he had it laid out for just the right time at just the right place for this appointment. In fact, he had it circled, highlighted, and underlined on Jesus's calendar because he was going to do something that was a little bit out of the box. Jesus had to go. He was not forced to go, but he's obedient to the Father's will above all else. And God says, go, boy, I have someone for you to have an interaction with. Let's read about it. John, starting in, uh, John 4, starting in verse 5, it says this, eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob left to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. 
He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. I want to point out a couple things to you because there's interesting nuances going on in this story here as this, as this Samaritan woman interacts with this Jewish rabbi in the person of Jesus. First off, it's noontime. It's the heat of the day. No one goes to draw water at noon because it's hot. They go in the morning or they go in the early evening because that's the most favorable temperatures. And so this woman goes out at noontime, not by her own choosing. Oh, the other thing that I want you guys to see is she goes alone. This was not a solo activity. activity. A, a, a bucket full of water is heavy. Usually you go in pairs, so you got somebody to, to shoulder the weight with. Usually you go in pairs in case one of them falls in the well, you got somebody else to go for help. Usually you go in, in groups because it, it's a community activity. You're working together to achieve a common goal. But this woman goes by herself. And as we look at this woman, there must be a reason there must be a reason why she's going by herself. Either she is wanting to avoid everybody, stay out of everybody's eye shot, stay incognito, or everybody else is avoiding her. I have to imagine it's a mix of both because this woman has a past and we're gonna find out about it real quick here. Verse nine says this, the woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? See, even this woman, an outcast of her own village, looks upon Jesus and she finds it odd that this Jewish rabbi is sitting by this well in Samaria for one, and talking to her for two, and she, she doesn't even respond to his request, but she points out the obvious. Why are you talking to me? She calls him on this odd behavior. Verse 10, Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then... I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. She's a little confused. Look at what she's wanting from this interaction. She's wanting this water because she thinks it's going to allow her to hide deeper in her own shame. She's wanting this water that will quench her forever thirst because she despises coming to this well day after day in the heat of the day alone avoiding the people that she does life with because she carries such a burden on her shoulders. As she hears Jesus unpack of this water that will quench her thirst for all time, she goes, oh, fantastic. I no longer have to show my face ever to the people that are around me. So I would really, really, really want this. She even points out the obvious. She looks Jesus up and down and she goes, sir, <laughs> where are you gonna get this water? You don't even have a bucket. You don't have a rope. And the well is extremely deep. She's observant. 
But I love what Jesus does here. Guys, don't miss this. He moves on from the metaphor. He moves on from the designation that he's placing on himself and goes with a direct approach. She's not gonna be able to wiggle out of this one. She's not gonna be able to focus on the wrong things on this one. Check this out, verse 16. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man that you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. I told you it's important to pay attention to punctuation in Scripture. Jesus has two exclamation points right here. He really wants to drive the point home to this woman that he knows her, not just in her successes, but in her failures, not just in her occupation, but in the things that she desires to keep hidden deep within her soul, deep within the shadows of her life, the things that she's disgusted by, the, the behaviors that she continues to return to as a dog returns to his vomit. Jesus is not going to let her wiggle loose on this one. He is now now in control of this conversation and she is starting to get a little bit uncomfortable. Jesus isn't going to politely pretend that the things that she wants to be okay are actually okay. If she's going to receive his grace, that living water that is going to quench the thirst that she has in her soul, she needs to stop hiding her sin. Let's see what happens in 19. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place for worship? While we Samaritans claim that it's here on Mount Gezerim, where our ancestors worshiped. I love this. This is a tactic we all use when faced about the things that we'd rather keep hidden in our lives. It's called deflection. When someone calls us on something that we're having a hard time wrestling with in our soul, what do we like to do? We like to place the conversation in another direction, hoping that they never circle back to the thing that we don't want to admit. I know that I do that all the time. This woman at the well is like, whoa, this guy's getting real personal. How did he know that? Who did he interview? What people came here before that talked about me behind my back? I'm going to go ahead and, and spin it now. We're going to talk about religion because this guy must be a prophet. She tries to change the subject. She tries to put attention on something or someone else to move it off her own shame. There's a lot of false assumptions that we make about Jesus and the role that he desires to play in our life, or maybe even our own condition in front of Jesus, the savior of the world. Some of these false assumptions that we've made about Jesus is that Jesus wants nothing to do with me or that he wants nothing to do with you. And if that's your assumption about Jesus, then I challenge you with this. Maybe it's true that you, at the, to this point in your life, have really wanted nothing to do with him. There was this old billboard that existed in the town that I grew up in, and they always had the, like, the cheesy church sayings, and I used to love them. Some of them I even wrote down uh, because they were actually really good and actually quite thought-provoking. And one of them that struck me, and I remember this from when I was 14 years old, so obviously it landed in there somewhere. One of the sayings said this, feel like God is distant, who moved? We talked about we have a consistent God who's the same yesterday as he is today, who he is tomorrow, right? And so if God is those things, then really the one who is unfaithful is us, right? If you think that Jesus wants nothing to do with you, then please redirect your thinking. 
because he paid an ultimate price for you. He's already chosen you. He's just waiting for you to choose him back. I have friends who don't have kids, and they've often asked me, Kevin, why is it that you would choose to have a kid? Why is it that you would choose to have a child knowing that, that they're going to be costly to you, knowing that as they grow up, they're going to dominate your schedule, and your calendar is going to be filled with all of their stuff, and then they're going to go off to college, and maybe they're going to choose a different lifestyle than you would have them choose. And maybe they're going to even walk away from the things that you believe. They're not going to choose to follow Jesus. And, and you're going to have to deal with that. And maybe someday they might even choose to disown you and they might live in a whole different part of the world. And you spent a good chunk of your life and a good chunk of your money raising up that kid. Kevin, why is it that you would choose to have a kid? And I always respond to them the same way. It's worth the risk. It's worth the risk. Every time I look at my boys and I put my hand down and they put, you can clap, I guess, if you want. <laughs> I, I didn't want to deny you your slow clap opportunity. But every time I put my hand down and my boys look up at me and they take my hand as a sign of security, knowing that their daddy loves them more than they could ever understand and ever know, it's worth it. See, Jesus chose you and he chose I long before we ever choose him back. He's paid that price. There's another assumption that we make about Jesus. Jesus is more interested in religion than he is in me. See, the woman tried to use this cop out. She looked at him and recognized, well, you must be a prophet. So I'm going to go ahead and redirect this conversation off of my shame and off of my sinfulness when it gets too personal. And I'm going to put it on religion. Here's the difference about faith in Jesus. We call it Christianity. Here's the difference about faith in Jesus compared to every other single religion that exists on this planet. Every other religion that exists on this planet is this. This is what I have to do to work my way to God. Christianity, following after Jesus, is completely different. This is what God has done to work his way to us. See, he paid a price that we couldn't pay for ourselves. Why? Because we can't. We are physically enabled. We are emotionally enabled. We are spiritually enabled and ill-equipped to do so. The other assumption that we make about Jesus that is false is Jesus is making an offer too good to be true. I see this woman, she, she looks at Jesus and she hears about this living water and she goes, sir, you don't even have a bucket and you don't even have a rope and I don't buy what you are selling. I would like this water so that I don't have to show my face here, but I have to think that you're making a promise that you can't deliver upon. Let's jump back into the scripture. This is verse 25. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And I look at that scripture and I find that ironic as she's sitting in front of Jesus, the Messiah, the chosen one who is going to take the shame of the world as a result of sin and place it on his shoulders, taking the full wrath of God so that you and I could one day call upon his name and we could have his righteousness thrust upon us. She's sitting face to face in a small village in Samaria and she goes, I know the Messiah is coming and one day he will explain everything to us. He just did. He just did. And you missed it. Verse 26, then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Again, exclamation point. 
don't miss it. He's like, I know you know he's coming. We got another one. I know you know he's coming, but don't miss it. Do not miss it. You want the living water? I'm offering it to you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what's been done to you. If you accept it, it's a gift to you. You do not have to earn it, and you do not have to live in your shame because I want to bear that for you. I am the Messiah that you have waited for. And this is the one time in Jesus' life where he voluntarily and openly tells somebody in plain language, I am the Messiah. And it's to a social outcast, to a group of people that Jews didn't associate with. Why? Because Jesus didn't just come for the Jews. He came for everybody. He came to seek and save which was lost. He came as a doctor for the sick. And as this Samaritan woman is having an interaction with Jesus, this woman with a bad reputation who's been married five times and is living with a dude who's not her husband, is about to experience, maybe for the first time in her entire life, grace. Grace is something that we do not deserve, and it's certainly something we cannot earn. But in order to accept it, we need to come out of the shadows of our own shame and face the things that we call sin. Look, some of you think that the worst thing that could happen in your life is for your sin and your shame to reach the surface. My friends, I'm here to tell you that the worst thing in your life that you can do is to spend your life trying to outrun God because you think that he's chasing after you, ready to collect from you something that you owe him, when in reality, he's chasing after you to give you something that you could never afford. So remember that. Look, this woman could never forgive herself for what she's done or the person that she's become, but her life just collided with radical grace and absolute truth, and she began to see things differently. Let's see how this story wraps up. This is 28 through 30. The woman left her water jar beside the well, and she ran back to the village telling everybody, not just somebody, but everybody. She says this, come and see the man who told me everything that I did. How or could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Look, when God's grace collides with our shame and our guilt, it's messy, but it's also beautiful. And Jesus knows every single thing that this woman has ever done. But he proves in this instance that once again, his grace is greater than our shame. He continues on now. Jesus is, is he's performing these miracles and these signs and these wonders. We saw it in our drama. There was an official, a Roman official, whose son was very, very ill. And he comes before Jesus and he begs. Jesus to intercede and Jesus looks at this man and he sees his heart for his son and he says your son will be well his comrades run up to him and they tell him your boy is healed and he said well what time did it happen and and he realizes that the moment that his son received healing was the moment that Jesus uttered those words proving that Jesus has has authority over sickness over our health over our bodies Another miracle that he performed later on in chapter five is, is he comes to this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. Paralyzed for 38 years, the only dwelling that he knows is the mat which he lays upon, which is filthy. And he's by this pool because for some reason, people in the town who suffered from diseases and ailments 
they, they laid by this pool hoping that this pool would be the answer, that it would fill the void, that it would somehow provide this healing that they so longed for, but yet the pool had to be stirred, and it was this race of these sick and ill people. Every time someone came to stir the pool, the first one in was going to receive the blessing, and Jesus looks at this paralyzed man who has lied there for 38 years and begged for someone to have pity upon him. Jesus looks at him and asks him a simple question. Do you want to get well? Do you want that? The man, yeah. The man explains to Jesus why this is a foreign concept to him and why this is impossible. In his, in his earthly understanding, he looks at the light of the world and he says, I can't get there first. I can't get to the pool before anyone else because I don't move as fast as anyone else. And Jesus goes, great, because in my father's house, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And he looks upon him and he says, get up with an exclamation point. Pick up your mat and walk. And the man does just that. 38 years. 38 years, this man's body has a void that Jesus in an, instance, in an instant gives him a command and all of a sudden he is on his feet. The Pharisees see this and instead of rejoicing at what goes on in front of them, they're angry because of the day in which it happens, the Sabbath, a day handed down from God for our benefit. But they look at this miracle and go, oh, whoa, 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 time out, flag on the play. This is not right. Let's pick it up in John 5, 16 through 19. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish, Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In this passage, do not miss what's happening here, because now all of a sudden the Sabbath isn't the problem. Now all, this, uh, this, all of a sudden the problem is, is who Jesus is is comparing himself to, is relating to, is saying that he belongs to, and that is God the Father. In this passage, Jesus is affirming how we started this whole journey together in John 1.1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus gave him this answer, very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. Jesus is on a rampage of miracles right now, guys. He is on a rampage of miracles, and he's meeting people in their despair, in their weakness, in their brokenness. And I know that Jesus still to this day works in that way because I stand in front of you having experienced it my own self. At 19, at 19 years of age, after knowing a lot of things about Jesus but never actually knowing Jesus, I finally 
was at a point where I was so broken that I had no other alternative but to throw my hands up and go, Jesus, I don't understand you, but I understand the mess that I've made. And I allowed my shame and my sin to come to the surface and I actually faced it for the first time. And I handed it over to Jesus and said, you go ahead and do whatever it is that you wanna do because I don't know how to do it right. But I have to think that you know better than I do. It's called trust and a power and authority that's greater than yourself. And it's a hard thing to do. It's a scary thing to do, but it's a worthwhile and life-giving thing to do. Check this out, guys. This is John chapter 6. Jesus is feeding the 5,000. This is an amazing story. You've got Jesus, and he's teaching, and there's a whole bunch of people that have been sitting for a really, really long time. And when you sit for a really, really long time, you have basic needs. And some of those basic needs are food. And see, Jesus not only satisfies our greatest need, but he's concerned about our basic needs as well. He looks at his disciples, training moment here. He looks at them and he says, we got to feed all these people. And his disciples are like, oh, problem mode. We got to go into a saw. Philip, he's the first to speak. He goes, um, Jesus, that'll take eight months wages at least to feed all these people. And so Jesus looks around at his disciples and he says, all right, go ahead and walk around the crowd and see what kind of things you can drum up and, uh, and we'll just see what we can do with that. And so they start to walk around and one of the disciples goes, um, this little boy, he showed up and he's got these five loaves and, and these two fish. These are barley loaves. They're nothing fancy. In fact, if you look at this lunch compared to what other people would usually dine upon, this would be the lunch of a lower class citizen. And so this boy looks at these disciples and he, he looks at the need around him, which is vast. And he goes, here you go. And gives away his lunch. And I know that there's been times in my life where I've looked at a need and I've gone, oh, that is far greater than anything that I am able to satisfy. And in those moments, I am 100% correct. But this guy, this young boy goes, I'm going to go ahead and just trust that this teacher that we've been hearing for all these hours and, and days is, is going to do something greater than I can do with five barley loaves and two fish. And so in faith, in the same faith that the Roman official had, in the same faith that the broken man had, in the same faith that the servants at the wedding banquet had, he hands over his lunch to someone who can do something greater than he can do. And so he starts to divide... <laughs> you guys are awesome. He starts to divide these loaves, tearing them apart. And he tells his disciples, and I love this. He tells his disciples, go ahead and distribute this to the people. Have them sit down and distribute the bread and the fish to the people. I don't think it was an accident that Jesus instructed them to have them sit down. I think that Jesus had the people in the crowd sit down so that the disciples could be well aware of the magnitude of the miracle that is about to take place. Because if they're standing, it's harder to see the amount of people that are going to be blessed by what Jesus is going to do. But if they're sitting, the disciples now have a bird's eye view of the amount of people this is going to affect. Check this out. This is John 5, verse 11. It says, Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. 
after everyone was full, not satisfied, full. And I know what it's like to have a longing for the feeling of full. I lived my entire high school, junior high, elementary school with a void that I tried to fill with all sorts of things. See, I was drawing from the wrong well with the wrong type of bucket for my entire upbringing, my entire schooling years. I was trying to get my, my void filled with achievement. I was trying to get my void filled with relationship. I was trying to get my void filled with certain friendship groups or being invited to certain things or the way people would pat me on the back that like if, if I were a dog in these skits I would be a golden retriever when I was sitting in your seats because if anybody was going to be like oh good boy and pat me on the head that's all I needed for an instance but then the void was back and these people <laughs> these people got to eat until they were full Jesus told his disciples now gather the leftovers so that Nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves and the two fish. And what is happening? Oh, yes. <laughs> what is happening, guys, in this story? Because check it out, these disciples are relatively new to following this rabbi Jesus. But what is happening in this story as these disciples are collecting these leftovers in these baskets, they are holding proof that Jesus is who he says he is. They are holding proof that Jesus is a rabbi greater than any other rabbi, that he's a teacher greater than any other teacher, that he is a miracle worker. And if you are looking for modern day proof that Jesus is who he says he is, then hold this. Because in our scriptures, cover to cover, God speaks of his love for you, his plan for you, and his redeeming grace that he desires to extend to you through his son, Jesus. Let me wrap with this, guys. Right after this happens, right after this happens, Jesus heads on to the other side of the lake with his disciples, and some people start to follow after him. See, the, the crowd wakes up, and they're like, oh, dude, where, where's Jesus? Why? Because all of a sudden, there's that emptiness again. See, what most of the people in that crowd received that day was just a meal. They didn't receive nourishment for their soul. They didn't receive something that changed their hearts. They didn't receive grace upon grace. They received a meal. And as you know, <laughs> all right, guys, as you know, when you eat a meal, after a while, you begin to be hungry again. And so they find out. All right, hold your applause to the end. Let me wrap up with this point, okay? As they realize where Jesus went, they start to make their way to the other side of the lake. And this isn't a short journey, but check out what they say. This is John 6, 27. It says this, as Jesus, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one 
he has sent. And I tell you this, guys, I told you this earlier, that, that following after Jesus is different than any other religion. Why? Because following after Jesus is all about what God has done to work his way to us. Why? Because God's house is not a house of merit. It's not a house of earning. It's a house of mercy, and he extends it to those who are willing to call upon a name that is greater than theirs, to call upon a name that is above every other name, and that name is Jesus. Verse 30 says this, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna. Manna was this little bread stuff that fell from the sky when the people were living in the desert in Exodus and they collected it each day. It was provided by God. But again, they ate it and they were hungry. So they said, hey, prove to us. Our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scripture says Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Look, God is well aware of our need, but he's also well aware of our greatest need, which he desires to satisfy. And the only way that we can truly receive grace upon grace is when we come out of the shadows of our own shame and call upon the name of Jesus, knowing that he's the answer, knowing that he's the remedy, knowing that he's paid the price that we cannot pay? Do we need to have all of our stuff together? Do we need to be on our Sunday best? Do we need to have all the answers? No, but we need to have a, a, a crazy amount of trust as we hand over the keys of our own life to Jesus and allow him to become greater as we become less in our own story as God desires to write it in a way that he writes it best. Let me pray, friends, and let's all call upon that name and trust that name of Jesus above our own. That is my prayer for you guys. Lord Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these miracles that we see and the authority by which you do them. And Lord, I thank you and and I know that you are up to good work, Lord. I know that you are knocking on hearts, that you are doing what only you can do, and that is redeem a soul, Lord. So I know there are friends in this crowd right now that have a void and have a vacancy that they've tried to fill, that they've tried to draw from a well with some sort of other bucket. I pray that you continue to work in their lives, that they see and know and trust that you are the only one who truly satisfies. Thank you, Lord, that you are the bread of life, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.